I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Nanajeri people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I want people to be able to open up a good bottle of wine like any night of the week, and so I want to be able to make wines at a really attractive price for people, but I don't want to undervalue the region either, so it's, it's always been really tough. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Sam Watkins is a man with a plan. He's also the winemaking director of Watkins. With a long history in growing, making and selling grapes in the family business, he now stands beside his sister Jo and brother Ben pursuing their love of wine. Hi Sam, thanks for joining me. Hey, yeah, no, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be on the show. Well, I believe you're corralled on the show. I don't think you offered yourself up willingly, <laughs> but I'm so glad that someone's pushed you into it. <laughs> no, I was. Uh, I, I'd go so far as to say I was eager to be a part of it. <laughs> Keen as. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Sam, tell me about your first memory that you have of wine when you actually remember it being something you could um, consider or, 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 you know, have a memory of. Oh, look, I've uh, I've been in a family who's been quite wine focused for. A very long time. So, I I remember. Well, the first memory that really stands out for me actually is um, the nineteen ninety eight Chateau Renella vintage port. I remember my dad, my brother, and I went to. Oh, it was like an independent retail liquor store, something like Sip and Save or something like that, and got like a bottle of this vintage port, as we could call it back then. And we tried it, I don't know, a couple of nights later and it was so good. And the three of us actually went back to the shop and, well, I say the three of us, it would have been primarily dad as I'm uh, not entirely sure I would have been of drinking age at the time. Um, but anyway, I think that he went back and bought like all the rest of the stock they had of that particular port from the store. Um, and, you know, over the next few years, we continued coming back to this particular bottle and watching it evolve. And I mean, being able to have that experience with a wine is so cool to watch it almost be a living thing and watch it develop in the bottle over time. Especially port too. It's such a um, a social drink, isn't it? I think everybody has a port story about sharing in in, in a bottle, whether it's a good or a bad story. But I love that. And the fact that, like you said, you were able to get the last remaining stock of it and then kind of – so did every time you open a bottle, did you do it together? Yeah, I think so. He he might have snuck a bottle or two uh, with some other people. But, I mean, you're right. Port absolutely is like a sharing drink. I don't think too many people are sitting down and cracking a bottle of port and polishing it off by themselves it's not exactly a super healthy way to drink it but the other thing about port is that like it just has such long life to it so you can hold on to them for such a long time and watch them evolve you know over many many years yeah it's so very true and now your kind of story began back in kind of 1997 or, or maybe before that but Fleurio Vintas is kind of where it all began can you briefly tell me how your business kind of has evolved to where it is today yeah so I mean Back in 97, that was um, before I was exactly heavily involved in the business, although I think that um, as a young kid, I was uh, out in the vineyard helping them sort of plant up some stuff and probably mostly just getting in the way and being a hindrance, really. 
But so 97, uh, my family, um, along with the Randall family, bought some land in Currency Creek and we started planting up this vineyard um, and, you know, that was a bit of a boom in the wine industry at the time. We, we planted up quite a big vineyard out in Currency Creek. Um, but, you know, when you're, when you're just growing fruit, you're kind of at the mercy of the buyer if you don't have your own brand or anything. I mean, you know, you've got this commodity that's sitting on the vine that sort of has to get picked in a very small window. And so, if if you've got a buyer sort of pushing back at you, um, it can very quickly put you in a poor uh, – well, on the back foot in terms of business. So, I guess that led us to, in 2005, we bought uh, – a winery in Chandler's Hill, um, which at the time we labelled Flurio Vintners, um, and the business just sort of grew from there. So in 2013, we bought another big winery in McLaren Vale called Boar's Rock, um, and we continued buying vineyards all over the place until in 2019 uh, we split from the Randall family, became family owned. That's I'd already been working for the business at, for seven or eight years at that stage as a winemaker. Um, but at that point, I became the winemaking director. My brother, Ben, was involved. He's the commercial director. My sister, Joe came on board as a brand and marketing uh, director and sales. Um, and, and at that point, we started developing the brand that we were at. We'd been making these wines out of the grapes we were growing to be able to sell to other winemakers to put into their own products. But we decided to build our own brand so we could actually share these wines that we've been making for you know years and years with people and um it's all just kind of grown from there so that was just two two and a half years ago that we launched the brand and um you know now it's getting out and about more and more which is incredibly exciting to see um as somebody who was sort of behind the scenes for so long yeah, it must be such a different experience, but I kind of want to focus a little bit on exactly that what you were saying. I mean, it is a young brand, but you've got a really long history of, of growing grapes and knowing what you're doing and making wine. Talk to me a little bit about, um, we've never really gone on into the podcast on the kind of the importance of, of growing grapes and selling grapes. And now you're having such a different experience with your own brand. And like you said, doing what you want to put it into bottle for yourselves. But tell me a little bit about the importance of kind of grape growing. And and in particular, I want to focus on Langhorn Creek because it's such an incredible place. Um, And I know you also make wine in the Adelaide Hills as well. But in particular, talk to me a little bit about growing grapes. Oh man, okay. There's a lot of questions there, <laughs> but I'll uh, I'll just try and sort of tackle them uh, one at a time. I guess first of all, Langhorn Creek. Um, you know, I'm I'm a huge advocate of. I I love Langhorn Creek. When I first encountered it many many years ago, actually the the first main encounter I had with Langhorn Creek was uh, coming to the Langhorn Creek Wine Show luncheon back before it was an official wine show, um, and I would have been like fresh out of high school, you know, 19 years old or something. Um, and I was just working uh, as like a waiter at this thing, but fell in love with the region. And, and we've got, we've had vineyards here in the region for, I'm, I'm in Langham Creek right now, by the way. Um, so we've had vineyards in the region here for, um, oh, it'll be 15 years, more than 15 years now, 17. Um and as a community, I fell in love with it, but also as, as you said, a place to grow grapes. 
Langhorn Creek has all these wonderful things going for it with, you know, nice, large open areas um, of consistent sort of soil profile, which make it really easy to produce blocks of consistent fruit, um, which make it really easy to work with. But then that's coupled with the fact that we've got Lake Alexandrina just to the south of the region, which acts as a massive evaporative air conditioner for the whole region. And so we get a great diurnal shift where we get some nice warm days but very cool nights. And that means that the vine can sort of rest up at night and retain its natural acidity and um, beautiful varietal characteristics, but the warm days still help it to progress and ripen so that you still get a lovely generous generosity of fruit coming across in the palate. Um, so, I mean, at the end of the day, growing really good fruit is critical to making good wine. You can't make a really good wine out of pretty crappy fruit. So, you know, that's always been something really important to me and to my family. Now, we've sort of gone into the branded thing from the back end. A lot of people will start a wine brand and they'll be you know, buying fruit from people and making it somewhere. And then as the brand sort of grows, they'll shore up their supply and, and put some more capital into, you know, a winery or actually owning a vineyard or, you know, anything like that. We spent all these years building up the back end of the business, starting with our vineyards, then purchasing the winery and building up our experience and knowledge about the exact sites, the exact vineyards that we have. Because that's even when you've had, you know, a number of years of experience as a winemaker, um, individual sites, they're all different and it takes time to get to know what, how, how the fruit sort of wants to express itself from that site. So we went through all that and built all that up before we even started the brand, which meant that we were able to launch a really strong brand. I mean, coupled with um, the fantastic work that we had done in, in developing the brand assets and labels and all that sort of thing. Um, and Sister Joe has put in so much into that side of things, um, which, you know, is all so critical. So I, I guess it's just, Every aspect is important and we've wanted to make sure that we could do each part of it, you know, just how we want to do it. Mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting because you're right, you have kind of gone the opposite way to what you not often see for smaller kind of brands in that you see their developmental stages in each kind of vintage, you know, like, oh, you know, we've worked out now that we're in our fourth year of this particular fruit that we could do this and and like you said when when I got to know you and I got to know a little bit about what you did it made sense when you finally said we're going to launch Watkins Wine and I was like yes finally like that makes sense you know because like you said you had just so much knowledge of of um, the places that you that you grow your grapes and and I mean you've got quite a few number of hectares now that you what 140 something like that uh, up to 155 now. We planted more this year because we wanted even more varieties. We're up to 17 varieties now as well. <laughs> amazing, amazing. I mean, that's that's pretty exciting, and you you get you can certainly get your hands dirty. But being that Watkins Wine is a family operated business, I want to know a little bit more about you, or just share a little bit more about you because you're certainly a character and one of my favourite humans. 
You started your Bachelor of Onology in when you're 17, which is fairly young for such serious pursuits. I mean, I know it was in your family, but you didn't ever feel the need, you know, at 17 to be kind of chasing parties and girls and general debauchery. You just thought you would get straight into tackling what you want to be. Oh, I love how you make it sound like I didn't do both. Um, no, <laughs> uh, yeah, 17 is a pretty young age to go into studying winemaking. Um, so the uni thought as well when they had to uh, work out exactly how they were going to do the tasting component of the course with a few of us. Um, normally, they were sort of spread out throughout the year uh, down at, the National Wine Centre, um, that was sort of the campus that they were doing that part from, um, but being underage, I couldn't actually participate in those bits. So they waited till the end of the first semester and sent myself along with a couple of others up to Wake Campus. And we did all of our tastings there in like one week, uh, like the whole semester's worth of tastings, which seems kind of crazy actually sending a 17 year old to taste a semester's worth of wine in one week but anyway the way it was done um yeah look i actually going into uni um i had actually intended to take a different career path i going through high school i was convinced that i was going to go on to study civil engineering and then it wasn't until the last second that i actually went with my second preference of enology and very glad that I did. I'm sure that there would have been um, not a small bit of guidance, um, probably not even very subtle from my parents in sort of helping me towards that path, but very glad that I did. Um, it's been, well, yeah, I guess quite a, quite a journey. Um, I think with something like winemaking, there's this expectation that you do move around a lot and and learn from a number of different places about what you're doing um, so you can get a more worldly view about, you know, how to make wine. And I've had a lot of fun with that. And so when you say I wasn't out there chasing debauchery or anything, well, yeah, when you're as a young, uh, newly finished studying winemaker traveling around the world to different um, wine producing regions, there's Plenty of time for that, I can assure you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you didn't miss out on anything. That's good to hear. <laughs> no, never, never. I know that your first vintage um, had an impression on you and, and you do hear that, you know, a vintage experience leaves a lasting impression. Paint the picture of what your very first vintage was like. Well, the first vintage um, particularly made an impression uh, in, in two ways, one of which is the fact that that, first winery that I did my first vintage at is the winery that we've moved back into as a family. And so I've sort of started off there and then gone all around the world and come back to that winery now. So, you know, I've got a huge amount of history with that site. But yeah, that first vintage um, was 2007. So I was 19 years old. Um, and at the time I didn't have my license. So I was staying at the Clarendon pub, which is three Ks down the road from the winery. But for anyone that knows the area through there, that road from the pub up to the winery is very, very steep. And I was having to head up there on my bike at the start of every shift. And it would take me like 30 minutes to get up to work and literally five minutes to get back down to the pub at the end of shift 
it was pretty intense. But at the start of vintage, I wasn't able to ride the whole way up to the top. And by the end, I could make it up without getting off my bike. So that was pretty satisfying to go through that. Um, but yeah, that first vintage uh, was night shift. Um, I was working, I think, yeah, I was like 7 p.m. till 7 a.m. Um, it was, it would have been six days a week. So, you know, 70 plus hours a week. And it was very different from any kind of work that I had done before. I, you know, had had part-time jobs and stuff. And I think when I first started Vintage, um, I was very aggressively challenged. Um, and, you know, there were some points through it that as a young person, it was like, am I ready to just give up on this? But I powered through it. And the more I sort of did it, the more satisfaction I got out of it and i guess it's something that you almost get addicted to it's this intense period at the start of every year where you're just so focused on that and and getting through vintage and when you do get to the end of it and you can sit down and look at all the wines that you've made it's it's so satisfying so yeah it, it had a very strong impression on me <laughs> Understandably. So I feel like what you're saying is that that vintage experience was uphill work and it was a slippery slope down to the pub. That is a pretty fitting <laughs> picture. <laughs> well, it would have been pretty tough if it was the opposite way around because trying to get up that hill after doing a 12-hour shift would have just been oof, brutal. No, you would have just lived up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, in 2010, you began working at Penfold's McGill Estate because you've had such incredible experience um, internationally as well. But I want to know a little bit about what you learned in communicating wine when you were working in the restaurant talking about wine. I think wine communication, you know, it's something that I've given a lot of thought. Um, I mean, well, first of all, you know, McGill Estate is a very high-end restaurant, but I never really got the hang of doing really sort of formal kind of service. That's never been how I want to interact with people. I like to be quite casual. I think, you know, there can be a lot of wank around wines. Um, and for people that aren't super experienced in the wine industry or, or just with wine, that can be quite an uncomfortable experience. And I mean, I don't like to see people uncomfortable, especially when they're, you know, around wine. So I, even at McGill Estate, I go into it in a very casual fashion, you know, formal enough to make people feel respected and everything. But um, I was really trying to just make people comfortable in there. And I found that that got a really good reaction from people. I mean, um, when you've got people rocking up who were there for a very special occasion, but maybe didn't often go to that sort of dining restaurant to have somebody, you know, try and just make them feel comfortable in the space um, went a long way. So I think with wine communication, if people can be comfortable and then the other aspect is finding a common language, that's the most important thing. A lot of the characters in wine are at high enough thresholds that almost anybody can pick up what's in there. Um, if you know, if you spend enough time with them and do the training and get the experience, you'll likely be able to differentiate out the flavors that are there. You don't have to have the strongest nose in the world, but I think 
just learning the language of being able to convey what it is. Well, first of all, being able to pick out what it is that you're smelling or tasting and then being able to convey it. That's what it's all about. That, that's what wine communication is all about. A lot of these people that are doing a lot of wine judging and everything, um, you know, what they've learned is this common language so that when after all of us judges have, you know, tasted through a number of wines and then we all go back to sit down and talk about them, we are able to convey what it is that we've tasted and, and you know, having a good memory for wines is, is very helpful as well where you, you can think back and go, oh, yeah, you know, I did, I did taste that thing. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what wine communication is all about. But also when it comes to wine, you know, the most important thing is just being able to find out what it is that you like. And if you're able to communicate as somebody who's getting started into the world of wine, if you can find out what it is you like and you're able to articulate that and communicate that to people, then you're going to be able to keep on coming across wines you like and it's going to just make it so much easier to learn more and more about wine. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. And you're right, there's that um, – it's almost like the first hurdle with wine is – whenever people say I enjoy it but they get really nervous with oh I don't know what I'm tasting or it's probably wrong and it's just about kind of letting someone go you know what if you say the wrong fruit it doesn't matter if that's what you think you get who cares and it's just getting them through that first hurdle but I also think with what you said about you know being casual is that you can always get more detailed and more nerdy and throw in more jargon but you have to start somewhere with people so I feel like if you can make someone feel relaxed then you can get if you if you know they're super highbrow and then they want to let you know that they know lots about wine there's always a place to go but if you start on this kind of top echelon and and yeah then then you then you don't have anywhere to go so I think that you said that so well yeah oh yeah yeah no I think starting like down low and then you know you can always go up but I mean so the other day um you know, over the, this past weekend, we were at Cellador Fest. And that's the kind of event where you've got a lot of people coming by. You often have a relatively quick sort of touch point with people. Um, but also, you have a lot of newer wine drinkers coming to these things. And, it's you know, when people come along to try my wines, I'm not going to try and flood them with information about it about a whole lot of stuff that they might not even retain or care about. When people come along to try the wines, I'll give them a bit of information about it and then see how they go with that. And most of the time, I found myself going back to just talking to people about if they were having a good time at the festival and, you know, what other brands they were going to go and check out, you know, which ones they've already been to that they enjoyed, what wines they've liked so far. And then if they want to know more about the exact wine they're tasting, they can ask me questions. But... That, that doesn't have to be what it's about. At the end of the day, wine is just there to be enjoyed. And you do that however however you most enjoy it. Yeah, so true. I couldn't agree more. Now, you've worked throughout numerous places in the world and had some amazing mentors. Name, can you give me like one example of or some something that's been particularly significant on your philosophies throughout that time? Um, nailing it down to just one would be, pretty difficult because <laughs> I mean, part of the beauty of going and working at a number of different places for a number of different people is you learn something from everyone that you work with. So, I mean, when I went and worked with Philip Shaw and Orange, um, I worked 
bloody hard and some seriously long hours. Um, and that's even after, you know, comparing to vintages where I'd been working 12-hour days and everything. So, I mean, I was sometimes working up to 18-hour days doing that. And I think having done that, that was a handy skill to learn how to do that and, you know, be able to keep focused in really long shifts like that. But it's also something that I learned that I don't want to put other people through and I would much prefer to have more staff members and work them shorter hours so that they can stay engaged and just not have a really crappy time at work. Um, I also worked with Sue Hodder at Wins, which was amazing because uh, her Cabernet is just so good. And I mean, to this day, the Black Label Cabernet is one of those wines that every year I get a dozen of it and put them down in the cellar because the kind of wine that you can enjoy the hell of, enjoy the hell out of at the moment, but also you can lie them down for years and years and years, and they just last so well. Um, Fiona Donald at Sepultsfield, super organized, really meticulous with how she goes about making all of her wines, and that's such an important skill to pick up. Um, and more recently working when I was at Boar's Rock, I ended up working under Andrew Locke, who taught me so much about like culture in a workplace. Um, I'd worked for some pretty poor culture workplaces and, you know, he sort of taught me that, well, you don't have to operate like that. You don't have to squeeze the hell out of people. You can provide uh, a really good place for people to work and you'll, you know, retain more staff they'll have a better time you can have a better vibe on this on your site like yeah so anyway look, i've i've worked with a number of different people and i try to learn something from everybody that i work with um so i guess in that sense i've had lots and lots of mentors out there in the wine industry well it's always such an inclusive um industry and you know I think that like you said if you're somebody that's willing to learn and work hard there's a lot of people out there that really want to pass on their their knowledge and and you know if you're a sponge and you can soak it up then you know you're you're pretty fortunate and it's great to have like you said the diversity of of experience that you've had uh, you're more than just an inhabitant of Langhorn Creek though you have been chair of the Langhorn Creek winemakers committee some might even go as far to say you could be the mayor of the horn, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't want to toot my own horn or anything. <laughs> no, no, I just, as I said earlier, I just love Langhorn Creek. I think it's a great area. It grows some great fruit and it's such a good community here. So it was many years ago that I first joined the winemaking committee. I was pretty fresh. Uh, into the winemaking pursuit at that time, but they were looking for somebody else on the committee. So I thought, ah, I'll give it a go. Why not? And I've just been on there a long time and sort of rose up to be chair. I think as much as anything, people just don't like giving speeches. And so they just sort of made me chair so that I would have to give the speeches, which I must say is not something I'm overly comfortable with myself either. But I think it's an incredibly handy skill that is something that you can learn to do and I've always sort of pushed myself to do it so that I could learn more public speaking skills. Um, I forgot that about you, that you don't love doing speeches and you're such a 
great communicator. You're such a talker. I just find it baffling that you hate speeches. It's bizarre, but I suppose they are a lot more, um, you know, formal and, and you have to make sure you're thanking the right people. So, and I know a lot of people are freaked out by public speaking, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, I, I much prefer to be having a conversation with someone and, you know, be guided as to where it's going. Whereas in a speech, you have to have it all set out from the start and know what you're planning to say and oh, just take a hold of organization and then there's all the people you're talking in front of as well but anyway you know and heaven forbid forbid you like forget one person and then you're like oh no they'll never forgive me <laughs> Well, Langcorn Creek has a special place in my heart. It was the first region the, to invite me as an associate judge, and that just began my frenzy for all things wine judging, and I cannot get enough of it. Um, it's also the first place that I ever had a West End draft. <laughs> um, and it's... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> which was epic, and uh, I will never forget, but it's also the first place that I had... Uh, I met my fear of giant moths, which if anyone doesn't know that, I am terrified of moths. And there was a moth plague when I was actually there judging. And uh, luckily, you held my hand through it because I, I was f completely freaked out. Would we say held your hand through it or would it be like forced you to face your fear? Probably reasonably, well, unreasonably. Um, but I'm glad that that's what you took from that whole experience. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was so emotional, I'm telling you. Um, but I want to know from your point of view, what do you think Langhorn produces unlike any other region in Australia? Oh, I mean, the the one to go to would have to be Malbec. Um, I mean, Langhorn Creek is getting quite a name for Malbec and having tried Malbecs from around the world um, and then having tried the ones here in Langhorn Creek, I think we're able to do such amazing purity of fruit coming through in them. I. I just love them. Actually, I feel bad. I could have – I have a glass of wine in front of me at the moment. I'm, I'm currently in the um, Bremerton cellar door. I, I just finished up some meetings down here and so just had to go and find like a quiet spot. So I've perched myself up here and so I grabbed a glass of their 21 Batonage Chardonnay, which is going down lovely. But it was actually a toss-up between that and their Malbec, which is also looking awesome at the moment. Um, so Malbec is one that is done really well in Langhorn Creek. But broader than that, I think there's this expectation out with consumers that Langhorn Creek is all about these big, heavy reds. Um, but Langhorn Creek is, because of what I was talking about earlier with the evaporative air conditioner and everything, it can do such a versatile range of varieties. And I think more modern winemaking styles are getting people to not try and make something absolutely – like the biggest possible wine they can out of fruit. People are sort of respecting the fruit and letting it present itself as it should. And so we're ending up with these more, I'd say, medium to full-bodied style uh, reds coming out of Langhorn Creek that have this beautiful freshness to them. And it's not just Malbec. It, it's so many different varieties from Shiraz and Cabernet to – I mean, personally, our brand – really hangs its hat on Grenache. Um, we grow a lot of Grenache and we, we've got some stunning Grenache coming out of 
this region. But then you look at a producer like Kim Bolton, who's able to produce these amazing multiple Chianos, then, you know, Bleasdale, Bremerton, Lake Breeze all have fantastic Malbecs. Cabernet in Langhorn Creek is so strong as well. So, I mean, we're, we're so lucky that in this region we can grow all these different varieties so well because – I would get very bored if I could only grow one and make one thing. So <laughs> that's why I've got, as I said, like 17 varieties planted in Langhorn Creek now. Um, you know, they all have their own way of expressing themselves from Langhorn Creek. And I think as long as you can find how how it should be presented, that how the fruit wants to be presented, you can make some fantastic wines out of all these varieties. That's uh, so true. And I think, you know, when you said, I think sometimes people do, if someone said, you know, they make these really big, heavy reds, I, I always was in disagreement and I'd always say, I feel like they're incredibly concentrated, but gone are the days of those really alcoholic, over-extracted wines. Now I see so much finesse and I just feel like the fruit is concentrated. And sometimes I think people can get a little confused with thinking that that, that necessarily means that they're inky and alcoholic and heavy, but it's just great purity and, and density of fruit that it's almost effortless in Langhorn. And the other component I think that's often missed is the the, the value of wine there. You know, if, if you, you know, looking at kind of dollar for dog, dollar figure, I think the quality that you can get in Langhorn Creek for what you pay for them is, is, you know, a little bit of a steal. So that's something else that I just, I really love about the offering. It, it absolutely is. Although I think that has been this thing that, Langhorn Creek has been focused on for a long time and we're actually just talking about uh, – met a bunch of the others in a um, meeting were just talking about this earlier and saying, I think we need to start working on our narrative and people get this idea in their heads about Langhorn Creek, you know, being good value and punching above its weight and everything. But I think we want to shift the narrative to just like rather than punching above our own weight, it's just – it's bloody good quality. We, you're absolutely right about that fruit density coming through. I mean, we get so much aromatic lift out of so many of these wines. That's that's what it's all about for me. And to be able to see beautiful, really expressive varietal wines that still have a lovely palate weight and you know are filled out nicely, so that they're not looking austere or hard or lean. Um, that's that's the beauty of Langhorn Creek. And then they've still got this lovely acid line. So, And that means that also these wines, although they can drink really nicely now, you can still also put them down in the cellar. And, you know, you look at some of the history of Langhorn Creek reds, you can pull out bottles from decades ago of wines that are just, you know, the standard level production of these great brands in Langhorn Creek and they're just holding up so well even now. Yeah, definitely. And and you're right. The I suppose the other argument is that these are quality wines and so they should demand a quality price point. So even though but I've always thought even if you bumped it up, you know, slapped an extra ten, fifteen dollars on a bottle, it's still probably gonna be really affordable anyway you know what I mean so you have to back yourself with that too and say these are quality wines I know we're known for value but that doesn't mean that we can't demand what we think our, our wines are worth as well so yeah but you could argue both points for sure it it's always been very it's a, it's a tough one for me I'm kind of torn because I 
I want people to be able to open up a good bottle of wine, good bottle of wine, like any night of the week. And so I want to be able to make wines at a really attractive price for people. But I don't want to undervalue the region either. So it's it's always been really tough trying to find that like toe that line between like where to set a price point. Yeah, yeah, very true. Now, Sam, you've never been shy of um, being able to pick out a drink for yourself. If you could only drink three drinks for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? And don't disappoint me, you've got to say the red tinny. <laughs> well, actually, I've I've kind of moved on the last couple of years from red tins to yellow tins. Have you, have you had the Henty Street Rover? No, I have that not. That is actually a delicious beer um and it's like sort of a little bit crafty but not like too craft beer it's still just like super smashable so actually i would have to say that that would be one of them then the other two would have to be wines and that's going to be really tough because uh, i don't know whether it would be like sparkling riesling or cabernet i think i'd probably have to land on riesling and cabernet because they're the two wines that I can drink really young or really old. I, I'm not I'm not necessarily huge on aging all types of reds. Like for things like Grenache and Shiraz, I tend to prefer them really young and fresh and vibrant. Um, but Cabernet, I can, and same with Riesling, I can just have it either way. Like when they're really young and they've got that lovely freshness to them, you know, Cabernet's got that leafy mint to it and like Riesling will have that particularly from Claire, that citrus and lovely minerality. Then you age them and the Riesling turns into something richer and and more complex. And the Cabernet just softens off and becomes so smooth. And, uh, yeah, no, I think that would be it. Riesling, Cabernet and my beloved Yellow Tins. Yellow Tins. <laughs> I feel – I don't know how I feel about that. I feel like you've moved on without me and oh, I'm a bit upset by that. But that's okay. I can always uh... – right. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Look, I have to agree with you, Riesling and Cabernet. Um, I actually am starting to have more Cabernet in my cellar more than anything else because I too am just a, such a big fan of how they change and evolve and become these ethereal, nuanced, delicate – things they're just amazing so three very good choices and uh well yeah i I did expect that from you so thank you (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad i didn't disappoint (laughs) not at all sam it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast i'm glad that you were conjoled into it and uh, i always enjoy our chats and i hope that you i get to see you sometime soon i know that i missed you last time you're in sydney but uh, i hope we get to catch up another time and uh you can introduce me to this new phantasmagorical beer oh yes next time you're in adelaide you'll have to come around and i'll just like load you up with yellow gems <laughs> excellent i'm gonna hold you to that <laughs> well actually I'm, I'm gonna be headed over there for taste australia so i don't know if you're gonna be part of that but hopefully i can catch you then lock it in awesome love <laughs> it well thank you so much sam it's been wonderful chatting and uh we'll chat soon cheers to you awesome thanks for having me this is over a glass I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.